Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. If you like the content that we're putting out and you'd love to see more, make sure you subscribe to our channel as well as share it with all your friends. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a really touchy subject, gatekeeping. We're going to give a formal definition of gatekeeping, and we're also going to give um, kind of personal definitions if, if we feel like they're a little bit different. And then we're going to explore all the different types of gatekeeping that happen within our society and within our industry as they relate to opera. I'm going to start off with a definition of, of gatekeeping from the Cambridge Dictionary. It says, the activity of trying to control who gets particular resources, power, opportunities, and who does not. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that really sums it up. But you got to have somebody there, right? You... <laughs> I mean, it's a necessary evil, if you want to put it that way, but decisions have to be made. So as artists, the only thing I would say just in all of this, because now that I have produced shows and done casting calls and, of course, been through auditions and stuff, it's very different when you're on the other side of the table. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to keep in mind, if you're the person auditioning, that a lot of times it truly is just business. It has nothing to do with you personally, but there has to be decisions made, right? We can't have 50,000 Susannas in the next production of Notze because there's only one in the Mm -hmm. show, as much as we would love to have all of them. I think for me, the the one thing that uh, this particular definition, although I think it really hits on what most people what most people think about in gatekeeping, I think the thing that it misses is that gatekeeping can be a filter mm-hmm. that is used to kind of safeguard whoever the entity, individual, individual company. The reason why they're using gatekeeping is to not be overloaded in whatever project they're trying to accomplish because time is money yeah you know as we all know and these companies especially let's take probably the worst example in terms of the amount of people that are trying to audition for very few roles is probably young artist programs oh yeah absolutely there's just not not enough hours in the day to literally listen to all the CDs or online things that are submitted. And as much as we get pissed off because like, did they even listen to my thing? Or I have this thing that checks how long it was listened to and they listened for 10 seconds. That's bullshit. I'm like, okay, but you're not in their position, right? So I want to say something about that. I think the major issue that people have with that is that they're paying application fees. And if I pay... If I pay an application fee and you don't listen to even, you know, 10 seconds or a minute, like at least listen to a minute. I think I deserve that courtesy because okay. I, well, I yeah, paid that's, for your time. That's a separate thing. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Exactly. You know, I guess I was assuming that there weren't in my scenario, Yeah. you know, 
paying to audition. Right. But yeah, I, t- I totally agree. If there is money being paid out, they owe it to the to the singers mm-hmm. to at least show that they yeah. somewhat tried. The positives of gatekeeping is that at the end of the day, what is the number one thing that companies, not artists, that companies are wanting to do? They are wanting to provide at a bare minimum a high quality product. Mm-hmm. So in order for that to happen, they have to use gatekeeping to, as we mentioned, thin the herd to streamline the process so that they can get the best singers that have either sent in stuff or through their network and connections and um, managers and so that they can have the best show possible, which means that more money comes in, which means that more shows happen. That is one of the big positives, you know, because like I mentioned, there's only so many Mm -hmm. hours in a day and you just got to do your best. Any other positives? I mean, I mean, that's that's really it. I I think like to really make it Mm -hmm. succinct. That is the main positive of gatekeeping. I I feel like it's a lot easier to point out the Mm -hmm. negatives than it is the positive. I do want to bring up this idea. I made a note after having a conversation with my partner about one thing about gatekeeping is that it does value oftentimes prestige and especially in our field. Like, you know, let's say Susie went to Yale. Yale has a great music program, right? Um, And then somebody went to, let's say, I don't know, the University of... um, Iowa, which is also a fairly good program. But Yale has a, Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, a higher prestige when it comes to performance in particular compared to uh, University of Iowa. Do we think that we should erase that idea of using any prestige to uh, determine who gets, you know, an audition and who doesn't, who gets hired and who doesn't? That is a really, really tricky question because on the one hand you could make the argument that yes these two programs while both very good one has more prestige why do they have that prestige well it could be for a variety of things it could be because someone at the company that you're auditioning for went there so they know the quality of the work Mm -hmm. that's generally there maybe they went to performances or maybe it's just strictly word of mouth which, as we all know, with the game of telephone, things can change very dramatically from yep. the source material. So just because there is prestige, that doesn't mean that it's actually mm-hmm. warranted. That also, if you go down that road, takes away the individual artist just looking at them side by side. True. And so that's really not fair to go strictly off of prestige for the person from Iowa. Also, I don't believe that just because you got a piece of paper from somewhere or you're going to a place that has prestige, that really automatically means that you are a better singer, better on Mm -hmm. stage, better colleague. Because we've we've all worked with people in professional settings who went to both, you know, places like Juilliard, Manhattan School of Music, all these big name places that are singing with people who went to literal no name colleges. They're still sharing the same stage. How much does that prestige actually matter? I mean, when it comes to casting, the only thing prestige would help is if you have a name and that sells tickets but in the audition process like we're going back to the young artist program or maybe it's a smaller company and you're not hiring a renee fleming Mm -hmm. or something like that then you just got to be more careful with what you do with that prestige because also there are there are diamonds in the rough too absolutely i just thought it was a really interesting thing to think about and like 
I know in particular, particular audition for a young artist program where I submitted. Yeah, I had an audition for them one year and then the next year I submitted and they accidentally sent out like a bunch of people got notification that they had an audition and they were like, oops, sorry, <laughs> not really. Oh, and I emailed them and I said, OK, <laughs> so I had an audition last year. Can can I get some feedback on why I didn't get one? This year. And and what I got was there wasn't mm. enough improvement on your resume. So it didn't have to do with my mm. singing. I mean, it might have. They might have just not cared to share that. But mm. yeah, I feel like that's a cop out in some ways. But I, it also is telling of the fact that particularly with young artist programs, they do care about prestige a little bit. Yeah. Well, because, uh, you know, when they make the bios. Oh, yeah. And stuff. Uh-huh. You can even take it to that level at the. Like, oh, this person went to Juilliard. Oh, they must be amazing. Well, let's wait till they open their mouth, but... Yeah, and well, and, you know, with going on the same sort of route with competitions, too. (laughs) Do we want to talk about the elephant in the room with that one? (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, So the Met competition, not a fan of it, and I will say that I've competed in it several times. And things, I've heard that Mm -hmm. they are really trying to make things change. But I've definitely, I've definitely seen artists who, yes, they're good, but were they the best of the day? No. And they moved on. And they tended to be in very prestigious mm-hmm. young artist programs. Yep. Which isn't the whole point of that, to find the next great artist to sing at the Met. It was supposed to be, in, you know, when it started. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Sounds like bullshit to me. <laughs> Uh, you know what's funny is fine, when I finally got to where I was like, I should try and do the Met competition, it was literally, I was 29 and a half, and I couldn't make it up there because of, because it was in Spokane, I was mm-hmm. in uh, mm-hmm. Moscow going to school, so that's like hour and a half, two hours, and it was something like, I had a concert okay. that was required for me to go yeah. to, because I had a solo in it or something like that, and so I never got to do it. But um, I think I competed three or four times. The first time, I think I probably was not ready. I, mean, I was like 23. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then it was like I was 26, 27. And I was going to compete my like last year. But they changed the they changed the age range thing again. They like oh. the way they did the dates was like it wasn't just the entire year. It was they it was weird. And I was like, OK, well, there goes that. Whatever. Yeah. One year they they told me that they wanted to send me on to regionals, but they wanted to see how my voice grew over like until the next year. And I was like, but you're not going to be the same judges. So like that yeah, exactly doesn't make me feel anything. <laughs> <laughs> I am cold and dead inside from that comment. Thank you very much. It's fine. Competitions are not the end all be all. They're a nice way to make some money sometimes. And that's how, honestly, how I view it now. I'm like, hmm, how much money are they offering? And uh, is it worth my time to invest in? Yeah. Well, I mean, my favorite example of that, you know, is Cardiff. Mm -hmm. I remember it was 1989. Not that I was caring about it then but the the one that always pops out to me is 1989 is when Bren Turville and Dmitry Havorostovsky mm-hmm. were in the finals and if I remember correctly Dima won the opera okay. category and Bryn won the art song category or vice versa and then 
whoever won the opera category, the other one was second place. And so they're like, well, of course you won the opera category. You're going to have this huge career, but screw you, number two. <laughs> and yet they both went on to massive careers. The same thing like Cheryl Milnes, <laughs> who's one of the greatest baritones of yeah. all time. He never won a yeah. competition ever. Yeah. But you're right. It is a good way to make some some quick money. Yeah, it can you know help you pay for voice lessons and coachings and things like that. Justify your existence <laughs> and your pursuit of your art a little bit. <laughs> we all need that from time to time. <laughs> okay, so talking about some of the positives of gatekeeping, and we've kind of touched on some of the negatives too, but we can go more into that. You know, you 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 are filtering out people, and you may be filtering out people because you need to limit the pool. But depending on how you approach Mm -hmm. that filtering, you may be eliminating candidates in a biased way. And I don't Mm -hmm. think any organization wants to be in that seat. No, definitely not. Even just being accused of it, like anything these days, is is a really bad situation Mm -hmm. to be in. But at the same time, and this may be a little bit of an unpopular opinion, I just feel like we need to be extremely careful about how pure we want these castings to be. Oh, yeah. We've talked about this before, right? Yeah. 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 So some stories, there is no room because they're historic. And, you know, like that that person in real life was of this, you know, ethnicity or race, however you want to define that. Um, And something different doesn't necessarily fit. Whereas if it is a, a fictional character, there's a little bit more room and you can definitely tastefully change location and time period and all these other ways of staging something mm-hmm. to dissolve any sort of preconceived notions about that. Totally. And though if we go down that route of always doing what we've always done in, in a negative mm-hmm. sense, like... One of the things that's been really awesome to see as more companies have become more racially diverse in their casting, I don't know what it is about this, but I kind of feel, and this isn't meant to be offensive, but like certain cultures have particular sounds because of like how they make their mm. language. Like I, that's what, like there's a connection there. By bringing in these new cultural sounds, mm-hmm. we'll say, mm-hmm. it really puts a really cool spin on like if you've been listening to a particular show, whatever it is, and it's kind of the same people, uh, and then you throw in this new person, it's a completely different experience and it could be revolutionary yeah. to how you view the character. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 Over the last several years before the pandemic and during the pandemic, there's been a lot of outspoken movement of coming from artists and um, of all types, you know, whether it's singers, composers, librettists, conductors, Mm. all saying like, hey, we want representation. We want our stories told. Can can we Mm. do something different? Because we've been doing the same thing and. And a lot of people get left out of the artistry because whether it's just people uh, can't see a different perspective in that particular story, so they can't see someone of a different culture playing that character. Mm-hmm. And and we're seeing that. We're seeing all sorts of stories being told, you know, with 
we've talked about this a lot with Blue at at Seattle Opera and other companies. Uh, the fire shut up in mm-hmm. in my bones. I don't know if you're aware, Mike. As one, as one, yeah. Uh, Fat Pig, a new opera. I haven't heard of this one. So Fat Pig of Victory Hall Opera just did it, and Tracy Cox was the main character, Helen. Okay. And it's uh, about a story about a fat woman and her uh, relationship with this man. You know, kind of all the things that go into uh, fat phobia and, and a lot of that is associated with the story. So uh, mm-hmm. it's just a cool. really good exploration of of love and intimacy in a realistic way. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's thin. <laughs> Yeah, I know I am. I've always been thin. Oh. <laughs> I know. No, that, that's a that's a uh, that's a really. I am. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. And, you know, because that is another stereotype and yes. gatekeeping actually yes. thing uh, is your your look. Absolutely, I think it's it's uh, so. been one of the biggest gatekeeping things in the last twenty years, twenty twenty five years, even, and a lot of it had to do with you know, the HD recordings yeah. and yeah, wanting definitely. wanting to kind of play off of whatever's going on in Hollywood. So that's like one negative that comes from gatekeeping. Obviously the largest mm-hmm. one. Other negatives that come from that too um, actually has to do with your audience. If mm-hmm. your audience doesn't see good representation on stage of diversity of all kinds, Mm-hmm. They may not feel that they're welcome in that space or even the types yeah. of shows. If we're only putting on only putting a Mozart and we're only putting on, you know, Verdi um, and we don't ever do even modern music. Well, then you've just, you know, maybe somebody's not interested in those composers. So now they don't want to come see anything because they don't feel like it's for them. And I think that that's a bigger issue if you're in a small market, especially, you know, if you're like, it seems like every major city has a Gilbert and Sullivan society. Yeah. Right. So that's their niche. Right. Yeah. That's okay. But that's, they can get away with that because they have in Seattle, for example, they have Seattle Opera, they have Fifth Avenue Theater, they have Mm -hmm. Taproot, all these different other companies. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you're in a small market, you're the only opera company or there's an opera company and a theater company and that's it. Mm -hmm. Uh, you really got to make sure that you're diversifying everything to to broaden your base because you are right. Like the people wanting to see them in the story yep. is extremely valuable and touching. You know, as I don't like playing this card, but like as a white dude mm-hmm. or even as a white woman, like we've been in everything. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for us to really get how important that is. Mm-hmm. But Um, As we try to include more people and broaden our net, which is partially why we're doing Elixir, it's one of the ways that we do that, it will bring more people in. Kind of wrapping up the positives and the negatives, the the next thing to kind of talk about is whether gatekeeping is institutional and systematic or whether it's just something that kind of has happened at a larger rate in our society which, yes, those things all happen in our society, in our culture here in the U.S. But there there can be institutional gatekeeping via the way an, uh, an organization is laid out in who has the power to make decisions and whether that power is distributed among several individuals or not. Mm-hmm. And, and this can depend on the size of your uh, organization, but I don't think that that purely determines that power distribution. Um, most mm-hmm. most opera companies, because of 
the way that uh, our tax system works in the U.S. are required to have a board, mm-hmm. and the board does have some decision-making power. And then oftentimes you have an executive director, an artistic director, and you know a few other directors. But uh, typically the person who is in charge of making casting decisions is your artistic director. Um, and depending on your organization, your executive director might have input and other individuals. It just depends. And in most of uh, opera's history, the artistic director, or in Europe, they're called intendants, are really largely the people who make these decisions mm-hmm. on who is cast or who gets an audition even. If they hold all that power, that's not really a great thing um, because they're just one person. Mm-hmm. and. Every person, we all have biases and we all have things that we love, oh, that we like and that we dislike. Um, so to give all of that power to one person is further filtering the candidate pool to the likes of one person. Mm-hmm. And and we've already talked about the effects that that has. Yeah, I, th- I think while I agree with what you're saying, I also really think it depends on the person. I think that one person, depending on who they are, can, through their vision of what they want the company to be, especially if it's an ever-expanding way of looking at opera and casting, Mm -hmm. that can theoretically be done by one person. But at the end of the day, even if you have two, three, 50 people, what if you have a tie? I think you're less likely, and this comes from maybe a a different perspective, there's less likely to be corruption corruption okay. within yeah, the a- casting <laughs> <laughs> okay if that, if that makes counter. sense yeah. because you're split you're yeah. distributing the power of among several people so then it's like i can't just say oh you know hey we were we went to school together um and now my student is auditioning for for your show like make sure she gets an audition mm-hmm. i see. okay i see what you mean yeah and plus i think even if it is technically one person who has the final decision, mm-hmm. I think it's extremely helpful, kind of like what you're saying, where you, it's usually if there is only one person, it's the artistic director, but maybe in the audition process, the executive director is there, or whoever else. Yeah. I think we all have blind spots, right? Like you said. Absolutely. And um, I remember when I was running an audition uh, for the last show I did before I moved to New York, the, my business partner, we would talk once everybody left. Cause we, it was actually kind of cool. We had everybody sing for each other kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there are things that I, I was like, yeah, this person's great. Or I don't know about this. And she would be like, well, wait, 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 what about this? And did you hear that? And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that. And, um, so it goes into the, I mean, the whole art form is collaborative. So, mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, you're right. That does having at least another person there to help you through the audition process and the uh, the filtering process can help avoid corruption and blind spots. Yeah. And if we look at it as within the system, within the whole industry of opera, and I think this has to include uh, education, at least mm-hmm. university education, that the K through 12 is a completely different thing because it's not necessarily a part of the industry. But honestly, like every university is usually training their vocal performance artists, their students to kind of focus on opera as being a part of what they're going to do in their job. Mm -hmm. So within that system, just, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll share my experience when I was in college. um, We were told we had to dress a certain way, not to make waves like all of these things in order to kind of make yourself 
obviously a good candidate, but also to like get through the gatekeeping, mm-hmm. right? Like I was told that if you're playing a female character, if you're singing a female character in an audition, you must wear a skirt and heels. And I have to tell you, I find that absolutely fucking ridiculous. You're going to tell me that like women don't wear fucking pants. Also, are we only doing traditional ones? What if you're doing an updated one? Exactly. And this was in the two thousands. Like we're not talking, I didn't go to school in the eighties or 70s i don't know like i was like i why am i hearing this why does this matter yeah totally i mean don't get me wrong like we probably shouldn't show up to auditions and thongs and that's it (laughs) but like i do think that i completely agree with you that the whole idea of you have to wear and for a dude a suit yeah why do i always have to wear a suit and like Okay, if you wear a suit, you don't have to wear a tie. But if you don't wear a coat, then you have to wear a tie. Like, all these dumb rules. It's like, okay, what what I have covering this piece of flesh is really irrelevant in terms of what is coming out of my mouth. Because you can put whatever you want on this thing of flesh. Yeah. but You're going to put whatever it, you want on that piece of flesh when it's on stage. So, like, exactly. why don't you just give so me a smock when mouth? I show up so that it's just, like, <laughs> it's not distracting. You just provide the smock. One mm-hmm. size fits or, all. Or, you know, they, or blind, uh, what do they call them? Blind the auditions, blind auditions, yeah. You could do it that way, too, but that has different issues with it because, obviously, you want to see a person's face and if they can move and all that stuff, but... But, you know, I mean, like this, this sort of gatekeeping has been baked into our entire education as artists. Mm -hmm. We we've experienced it from day one. And that kind of conditions you to be okay with it. Never Mm -hmm. push back. Although there has been pushback. Yeah, there is now. I think, uh, isn't it ironic that we're told to basically keep the peace and conform? Yet we're also like you're an artist the whole point is to be yourself and to interpret whatever you're doing yeah be expressive interpret it. Mm-hmm. yeah be, be, expre- be you know, yes yes be both a cog and a machine but be a unique cog because nobody wants yeah. boring yeah exactly <sighs> great logic <laughs> yeah yeah and along those lines this isn't I don't think that this is necessarily gatekeeping that happened that was intentional. Even access to getting into this industry is so prohibitively expensive that mm-hmm. gatekeeping happens at the very beginning. You know, they have to get in the door somehow. They have to be heard, have voice lessons, you know, depending on on their particular journey. Everyone's journey is is different. Some people Mm -hmm. go to college. Some people don't. Some people get master's degrees. Some don't. Some get doctorates. Some people do young artist Mm -hmm. programs. It's it's, it's different for everybody. But the thing that's not different is that you still have to have training in order to be qualified to do the job. And that training Mm -hmm. costs money. Totally. And then from a cost benefit analysis, like as you were talking, and I've thought about this before, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast. Just as like... To take a step back and relate this to not music. Mm-hmm. R- right now, we have this big thing in our country where you either are in one camp, which is a piece of paper from a university equals success down the road. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, then you're going to be destitute. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of it is. College is completely unnecessary. There are plenty of jobs out there that don't require a college degree. You may have to go to a trade school Mm -hmm. or no schooling at all. 
But as long as you stick with a certain career, you can either get a pension that way or you can create your own your own business. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there are people who do like landscaping that make hundreds of thousands of dollars because they own the thing. Yeah. Right. And they didn't get a college degree. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what you were just saying, it's like, I almost wonder what is the point of even going to college for music as long as you have somebody who can teach you privately how to make your voice do what it needs to do. Because really, Rachel, how many times after your undergrad or your master's were you asked by a conductor or whatever, like, so what? give me the details of Mozart's life. Oh, or like, never. Exactly. Do you really need music theory? No. Is it extremely helpful? 1,000%. But it's not necessary to be a great singer. So I'm almost wondering if there could ever be a time where there would be people who were regularly not going to school and getting through the gatekeeping. Because that, obviously, if you don't have uh, on your resume that you're going to some form of school, they're going to be like, hmm, what are you doing with your life? Mm -hmm. You know, until they really hear you sing. I think the really interesting thing about it is that I think we all know this, that opera artists were trained via apprenticeships before Mm -hmm. um, colleges started teaching music in the way that they do now. I I do think it's a better system than uh, having to be able to quantify what people are taught in colleges. I think that that has uh, does have a detrimental effect on the education that people get mm-hmm. at universities or even at some conservatories. I think it depends. I think the one thing that college did give people was access because of loans. Depending on your mm-hmm. socioeconomic standing, uh, you might not have been able to afford to get into that sort of apprenticeship, um, mm-hmm. but being able to go to college and be able to take out loans gave you access to the education. Whether you can afford to pay those loans back is a different story. That's a different story. Correct. I actually just watched the documentary on Marian Anderson, and I thought that that was pretty interesting because she didn't go to college and she, you know, she was singing at church with her grandma and someone heard her sing. It kind of slowly snowballed from there. Her, like how her, Mm-hmm. how she became a famous singer. She eventually mm-hmm. had to go to Europe because of the racial bias that occurred in the U.S. at the time that she lived. But it was just really interesting to, like, look at, like, she she couldn't, she didn't speak any of the languages that we sing in opera, like, even later in her life, which any artist now, if, if you, you know, if, if I told you, yeah, I don't understand any German, French, or Italian, you'd be like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you sure? You you don't you don't know any. People would be flabbergasted that you could be successful but not have that training. So I think that we've yeah. we've just reached a different perspective on what we consider qualified for one and different access and education and the power mm-hmm. that that has given individuals. Yeah. Cuz at the end of the day the whole access thing really is to make your life easier. Like in Marian Anderson's case, she didn't know the the languages, but if you are forced, let's just be real, forced to take a year of German or French or Italian or multiple of those, then when you get out of school, if you've had more than just your diction classes, it's going to be a lot easier for you to just do your job. Oh, yeah. Like the uptake, the uptake of the information will be a lot quicker than yep. having to figure it all out it, with a dictionary. It truly is. So. Yeah, uh, that's 
that's definitely something that if people are serious about wanting to pursue this career that I tell them like, yeah, learn languages. It's so one, you don't have to spend time translating. You just understand it. You don't have to spend time, uh, doing IPA. You just understand it. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Whenever gatekeeping comes up in conversations, uh, between different artists in our industry, people will talk about agents being a part of that gatekeeping system, Mm -hmm. critics, and then networking. So with agents, and this definitely is something I've talked about. It really has to do with bigger institutions in, in our industry, but a lot of them, if you go to their website and you like try and look up audition information, it'll be like, we only hear managed singers. Mm -hmm. So it's that, yeah, that's totally gatekeeping. You know, they're filtering who they're hearing through, a trusted individual, someone who they deem qualified to send them candidates that will be a good fit. But that's also an issue right now because after the pandemic, there are a lot fewer agents. Yeah. Well, and also, where's the website of the companies who have agents that are looking for people who aren't already managed? That's like, oh, here's a job, but you need five years of experience in this entry-level position. Yeah. It's an entry-level position. Like, that implies no experience, right? Yeah, and all so and all of us West Coasters um, are slightly jaded about this because there's like there's <laughs> all the agents live in New York, yeah. or at least most it's of them, not all of them, there. but like yeah, there's no agents on this side of the country, so like we have to spend a huge amount of money to go sing for agents, yeah, you know, and find find the right fit and all this stuff. And and a lot of agents will tell you like honestly they they won't they don't look at emails cold emails like they they generally find people through networking they find new artists to represent through networking or sometimes through competitions or you know if they a lot of agents do go watch shows obviously looking for new talent but then again if you're not in new york are they coming are they traveling around the u.s and then critics i don't know that this one really plays as much of a role anymore because with kind of the death of most newspapers beyond the big ones, uh, mm-hmm. only big institutions get critics coming to their shows and writing reviews. Yeah, I've been in so many shows at regional companies that don't get reviewed at all. Yeah, and like I didn't really think about that being a gatekeeping thing until you mentioned it. Because it's part of that prestige, right? You see, like, uh, every artist has quotes on their website from reviews about shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and not to go into the show that I didn't get a bad review, but there was a show I did in the Seattle area where the tenor just got eviscerated. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a guy who had sung multiple roles in the area. He used to be a former young artist at Seattle Opera. Like, he's not a bad singer, but like that one review of the opening weekend, which I don't remember it being like a terrible performance. It's just this person really, 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 really did not like him. Mm-hmm. And uh, it basically tanked the show the following weekend. Like, I think we had. Thursday and Saturday performances or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the Thursday performance, it was like not even 25% full. Oof. Which it's a, a Thursday night. I understand. It's not going to be necessarily full, especially because it wasn't like, you know, a, a main show like Carmen or something like that. Mm-hmm. But like it completely tanked it. So 
not only does, I mean, that's not really gatekeeping in the sense that we're talking about, but then if that, if a person is trying to look you up. Yeah. And if they see uh, that bad review, they may choose not to give you an audition based on a critic's words. Yeah. But then there's also part of me, it's like, well, who is this person? Like, really? Everything is so subjective. Mm -hmm. I mean, even somebody, oh, what's his name? That runs the opera thing on in New York. It's it's a WQXR uh, Plotkin um, is his name. Mm. Like even someone like that, he's like a big name mm-hmm. in, in in that. Like, okay, that's one person's opinion. Yeah, there are plenty of people who think Jesus is real, and plenty of people who don't. These are all opinions. So like, um, I yeah. So it's just it's really unfortunate when gatekeepers take so much stock in what one person may or may not have said about you. Yeah. And, and to go along with both of those, um, you know, agents and critics is kind of the, we, we kind of hit this on this networking and kind of like secrecy that goes along with a lot of auditions. A lot of people get work through networking and that's not a negative thing. I've gotten a lot of work through networking. I've, I've gotten work where I didn't have to audition. People were like, Hey, we're doing this show. Are you interested? Are you available? Mm-hmm. And that's great. What's not great is when it's done at a really large scale, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, maybe be a little bit more specific, because I think I know what you're getting at. And just in case I'm not the only dumb person if, in the room. If that's how, if that's case, how you're but... casting everything that you do. Oh, I see. Okay. So no open calls at all. Yeah. It's just everything is... Network. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely a problem because then that gets into the whole, as we've talked about uh, in the Seattle scene, as much as we love our friends and colleagues, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that Seattle is not, you know, abnormal in this case, but like it seems like there's a handful of people in each voice type that kind of get all the work and we can be jealous about that. I'm sure there's some of that with people, but like... There's so many great artists that get overlooked. Mm -hmm. And like we were talking about earlier, so many different interpretations and different colors of the voice that can bring new life to a character that when you have the same people, while great singers, I'm not taking away from anything that they do, Mm -hmm. uh, you're not affording your audience different perspectives. Yeah. That they may actually like just as much as those people that they've seen on stage over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think as we kind of talk about auditions and networking and and gatekeeping all of this, like something that Mike and I, we kind of talked about before we started recording was like, we're technically gatekeepers now having, you know, doing yep. our own production and, and um, we tried to be as open about our process when it comes to the casting and how we're doing it and uh, we asked people to submit audio. We didn't even care if it was video. Like we were okay with just audio at first. And then, you know, talking about, okay, if we need to do in-person auditions, we can. And the one thing, like the one big filter that we kind of applied to our auditions was wanting to hire local artists. And that just has to do with the scale that we're doing things at and wanting to serve our community. And I something that's very important to our community is supporting local artists. It's important to, like we mentioned before, have representation. You know, Seattle is a very diverse place. Mm -hmm. And we are obviously going to get who we think would be best for... I mean, I wrote the thing and I'm directing it. So I guess my vision of what Mm -hmm. the the story is. Mm -hmm. But 
with that being said, we want it to also be as um, representative of our community as much as we possibly can. Yeah. And it's very, it's a little bit harder to do that if you're constantly getting people from out of town. There's like no real connection to the place. From the time that we made the original announcement, we decided to, you know, ask for more submissions, basically not quite a year later. We're like, yeah, we're going to do this show. And then, you know, we had people submit pandemic stuff and whatnot. While we know new people have moved in the area and we don't necessarily know who they are. So we'd like to, you know, give them the opportunity to submit their materials and they might be someone that Mm -hmm. we think is a good fit. Yeah. And the, the other thing about it, too, for us moving forward after Elixir, because mm-hmm. I assume that this probably isn't going to be the only show we ever do together. We'll see. Yeah, um, we're, yeah we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Maybe afterwards, <laughs> she's like, okay, this podcast is over after Elixir. I am done with this guy. The fun, he the is the worst. Fundraising is, is challenging. <laughs> you know, that's probably the, yeah. the most challenging part about it. Putting together the show casting the show, all of that sort of stuff, I don't find the hard part. And, and But the fundraising is the hard part, and especially during yeah. all of what we've experienced in the last Yeah, years. inflation and gas prices yeah. just going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's like, how many roadblocks can the universe put in our way, mm-hmm. but we're still moving forward? Yeah. It's going to happen. Oh, what I was trying to say is like, for the people who submit, you know, in this second round of submissions, it never hurts to send in your stuff. Yep. What's the worst that can happen? We'll say no. But you know what will happen if you do send it in? We'll keep your stuff Mm -hmm. and then we'll at least know that you're out there. Yep. And we won't ghost you because we're not those types of people. Like when we make a decision, we're going to, we don't, you know, we're going to send an email to everyone individually because that's what. Yeah. People deserve it. Yeah. Exactly. People deserve that (laughs) communication. Yeah. Yeah. A no is still better than nothing. Mm -hmm. Here's how I see it. Like we are trying to be the change that we want to see. Yes. But I think the more that we treat people how we feel we would like to be treated, number one, but number two, we follow through. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't get cast, you know what? They'll probably come to the show just to check it out. Maybe. Versus if we ghost them, there's no fucking way they're doing it. Yeah. Like, screw those guys. And heaven forbid you put them on their mailing list and they didn't ask for that. Oh, I know. (laughs) I don't have a mailing list, by the way. I only do direct emails. (laughs) Yeah. One at a time. It's longer, but it's much better. So. Okay. I think we've pretty much covered everything with gatekeeping. And if we didn't, send us an email, uh, comment on our YouTube page or on our Instagram post. Share your thoughts. What What is gatekeeping to you? What, what have your experiences with it been? What things do you think the industry could do to change these barriers and these filters to make it more accessible and open to all of the wonderful artists in our industry. Totally. And I'll just say one more thing. You want to know what's the best way to avoid gatekeeping? Mm. Create your own opportunity. <laughs> yes. That, that's, I mean, that's so true. And if you think about the, the kind of the beginnings of a lot of uh, particular composers careers, really, they, they created their own opportunities. A lot of them, you know, they wrote these pieces and, it was like they were trying to find places to get it premiered and all of this. It, it wasn't like it was just handed to them. Some of them it was. And the other thing, too, and this is mostly because of other things that have happened in my life, 
in the last six months or so. If you're going to go down this route of creating your own opportunities, which I a billion percent support it, that's what I've been basically doing the whole time. Mm -hmm. And it's much more fulfilling that way. The other thing I will say to that is do not limit yourself to only opera and classical music. Yeah. Rachel, how many of our friends just in Seattle have gone from, we met you in this opera thing, and now you're doing heavy metal, mm -hmm. you're doing jazz, you're doing, you can totally create your own, not only style, but your own artistic thing that's more than just one thing. Now, yeah. if you really want to just do the one thing, cool, crush it. Well, but also don't, you know, limit yourself. I think so many of us came to opera uh, through another musical format, too. We all had different yeah, musical yeah. interests before we were exposed to opera. Mm -hmm. I know for myself personally, like when I started taking voice lessons, I wasn't I wasn't interested in doing opera. Like I wanted to do rock and roll. My dad had a rock band mm -hmm. and like I grew up listening to classic rock and I love that music. And that's like what I wanted to do. And then I finally got exposed to opera and then I was like, oh, that's fucking cool that someone can do that with their voice. I'd like to try that. Like that's literally my thought when when I experienced it. I was like that that sound just washed over my whole body. That's that's pretty phenomenal. And I I think that it's really surprising because often I feel that as singers we compartmentalize yes. different genres mm -hmm. of singing, mm -hmm. which there is value to that. I'm not saying there isn't value, but I think that the chasm between these different compartments is much narrower than we often give it credit. Yes. Old school musical theater and jazz, kind of the same thing. It's also kind of the same thing as opera. Operetta. Less vibrato. Yeah, operetta, yeah. Like, I really don't change, other than the vibrato, mm. I really don't change much when I sing Buble or Sinatra. Mm. It's still a full voice, just less vibrato. Yep. Right? When I do country, it's the same thing. You know, I've been doing... For those of you who follow my other podcasts, I do a lot of open mics and I I do opera in these open mics, but I also do a lot of other styles and I just sing with my voice. Yep. You know, and just kind of tweak the vibrato. So, yeah, just just figure you'll figure it out whatever it is if you're creating your own opportunities, but just be open. That's it. And I think some solutions that we can offer to organizations. <laughs> oh yeah, they're listening too. <laughs> Maybe maybe I, something i wrote down was examining the processes that you have about decision making and making sure that it uh, doesn't fall on one individual and that it's distributed between several individuals or even groups just to make sure that mm -hmm. you're not getting a, a single a two-dimensional thought just to really quickly piggyback off of that, as much as opera companies, and just really any company in general, one of the problems in our art form, I feel, even though it started off as a good thing, is that we, we're basically in a group think yeah. a lot of the times. Yeah, we'll have all diversity of everything except thought. So if you're looking at these different directors that you're hiring, try as much as you can to not just have it all be a monolith mm -hmm. in how you view the world, mm -hmm. because that's how you really bring in these different perspectives. Um, Absolutely. That your blind spots will um, prevent you from seeing. Yeah. Some other things to think about is uh, the audition format or audition process. Like, are you doing open auditioning at all? Could you perhaps do a certain percentage of your candidates are found through open auditions? Maybe not all of them have to be, but maybe you 10%. 
it's a good place to start. This is uh, more of like a broader thing is education funding. And I, I know a lot of uh, organizations do have educational outreach. Um, I think they focus on really young children a lot of the time, which I don't think is bad. But I, I think that middle school and high school kids get left out. Completely. Yeah. And I think that sometimes those kids actually, because they have a bit more autonomy as individuals, might be better candidates to reach out to. For future, uh, either future artists or future audience members. Oh, 100% agree. You know, I've done, I was trying to think, this was a while ago, but I think I've done probably 10 or 12 educational tours mm, Wow! in my career. And I can probably count on one hand how many of those have been to a place other than an elementary school. Wow. I've done zero. Like I, <laughs> I've done zero educational outreach programs. I... Somehow, I don't know, it's never happened. Well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a different beast, you know, yeah. and I really enjoyed it, but um, I know a lot of people that are like, I definitely think that that's uh, just something that's kind of missing and, and whether, and whether or not there can be some sort of funding for people pursuing arts education. Mm-hmm. I do know about, uh, there's a organization called Treehouse here in Seattle and they pay for music, dance lessons, stuff like that for foster children. And I think that is phenomenal. Oh, that's cool. That, that exists. Yeah. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this little discussion about gatekeeping. And like I said, let us know your thoughts and uh, we'll uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening to this podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your thoughts and requests, so leave us a comment below. For more information about the podcast or for extras, check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. You can help support the creation of this and much more content for as little as $3 a month. Like and subscribe to our channel and also follow us on Instagram at opera unbound to stay updated. Ciao. Thank you.